Hello, welcome to the Better Human podcast with me, Adam Wagner. This is a podcast all about human rights. Better Human podcast is sponsored by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. We really want you to get involved with this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at BeHumanPodcast or email me with any suggestions or ideas for the show, adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. And if you want to support the podcast, if you like what you hear, if you want to help us bring human rights topics to life, you can go to patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash betterhuman. And we ask that you contribute just $3 a month and we'll try and get some rewards uh, for people who do. But at the moment, it's just about supporting this very new podcast. And if you want to sponsor an episode, email sponsor at betterhumanpodcast.com. Today, we're going to be talking about social and economic rights. Um, and I have Professor Aoife Nolan with me, um, who's absolutely fantastic. She's a professor of international human rights law at the University of Nottingham. She's an independent expert at the Council of Europe's European Committee of Social Rights. Her core publication areas are economic and social rights, children's rights and constitutional law. She's been a visiting professor at various law schools around the world. She's advised multiple international and national organizations, including the World Bank, the Council of Europe, and various United Nations bodies. And she's an academic expert member of Doughty Street Chambers, which is where I am too and where we are now. So um, good morning, Aoife. Thank you very much. Um, thanks Hello, so, Adam. Thanks so much for coming on. I've got a fun fact about you, um, that you co-managed a re- you're co-managing a really interesting project on the topic of state budgets and the promotion of economic and social rights. And you produced a book on the topic called Human Rights and Public Finance, which you can get from Heart Publishing. Thank you for that plug. Absolutely. I'm not sure yeah. quite how fun that fact is. Is, is that a fun fact you would have chosen? No. Fun fact might be a lifelong obsession with Mary Wollstonecraft or... But actually, is that fun either? That, no, Probably that's, not. that's more fun. That's more fun. Um, so we're going to talk today about economic and social rights. Um, and I think a, a lot of people don't know that there are different kinds of human rights. I mean, maybe there aren't different kinds of human rights. Maybe there are just different ways of talking about the various human rights in the Universal Declaration. Um, but there is there is a distinction, certainly in practice of law and in also on the academic side between economic and social rights and what people would call political and civil rights. So do you want to just give us a introduction to what are economic and social rights and and why are economic and social rights um, necessary? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's simplest to explain uh, the legal division of economic, social, cultural, and civil and political rights is very much a historical, uh, is very much a historical story. But if we look at, say, the nature of the rights themselves, when we talk about economic and social rights, they tend to be the rights directly linked with uh, human survival, development, and flourishing. So, for instance, the right to an adequate standard of living, which is commonly understood to, say, include the right to adequate housing, the right to adequate food, the right to water, um, the right to adequate clothing, the right to social security, the right to education, the right to work, including the right to remuneration, and of course the right to uh, the right to strike as well. And I think it's quite interesting um, if you look at what we classify as economic and social rights. While we tend to talk about the strict division between rights, uh, economic, social, and cultural, and civil and political, if we take something like, say, the right to strike you see, or work rights, you see element of those rights in the key instruments, you know, the key legal documents that set out civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. You find, for instance, the right to strike or elements of of labor rights uh, in both of those instruments. And by those instruments, I mean these two historical, these two documents uh, that were drafted uh, in the 50s, ultimately were open for signature in the 60s. And one is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966. And the the other is the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And what you see there is you see two separate treaties, two separate instruments. And one is considered to be the legal home under international law, 
international human rights law, for civil and political rights. And in the other, you have economic, social, and cultural rights. But what's interesting, again, then, is that not only do you have this overlap, and for instance, non-discrimination equality is another element of both of those treaties. It's a fundamental part of civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights protection. So there isn't this strict division even in terms of the law. But if we take a step back from those instruments uh, that were finalized in the 60s and look back at kind of the international, I would say, you know, mummy and daddy of human rights, the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we don't see this division at all. What we see in that 1948 post-war instrument, very much driven by what had happened in World War II, very much setting out a vision for an international order of the socially just, of the progressive, of protecting the vulnerable, we see that it includes civil rights, social rights, economic rights, political rights and cultural rights. So we see them all together in this 1948 declaration that was adopted by all the states in the General Assembly at that time. But then as we see the 1950s develop and we see the Cold War develop, we see hardenings of political perspectives and geopolitics, we suddenly see human rights negotiation around the, the international binding treaties that were meant to come out of this 48 declaration. We see suddenly that this becomes another location of conflict between the East and the West effect. Okay, but let's go back to the Universal Declaration um, because, and you described it as the mummy and daddy, it's the, it's the parent of all of the, the rights that came after it. And it comes out of the Second World War. It's a, I, I think you described it as a vision, and a, as a declaration, but also a vision, which I think is a really interesting way and, and, pro- and correct way of describing it you know it's, it's quite the, the language whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human foundation is the found foundation of freedom justice and peace in the world that's pretty Absolutely. that's a vision yeah it, that's a vision and, th- and then everything else flows from it and it has the it has in it these kind of civil rights, which are things like free speech and freedom not to be unlawfully detained or freedom from torture. And then it's got um, the um, social rights. And it, it's not, it wasn't seen as two distinct things at the time. It was seen as, as a big vision of what equal and you know, uh, societies where people can live in dignity and equality look like. And I think the other thing that needs to be borne in mind as well is we have a tendency when we talk about the way human rights develops to talk about the East and the West division. There's also the Global South and the Global North division. And that as these instruments were being drafted, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, it was also overlapping with, say, a huge period of decolonization and independence. So you were seeing not just tensions between East and West as to what went where in terms of legal protection, but also you were seeing, you know, for instance, uh, different different political and philosophical perspectives coming from global south countries that were coming from, for instance, a very different perspective than, very different political perspective than, say, old colonial powers who would have been very involved, uh, who would have been very involved in and concerned about protecting civil and political rights. One of the things that we see in recent years is a growing understanding of the role that, say, particularly um, countries in the Americas, uh, African countries played with regards to pushing forward economic and social rights. At the time of the Universal Declaration, Britain and France were essentially representing in, the, in, in that negotiation, were representing their colonies. So those African states just weren't there at the table. So that this was, this was post-declaration that they, that they found a voice as they, as they reached independence and those, and those empires were dismantled. Absolutely. And I mean, there's no question, but the big, you know, the reason, the big reason we have a treaty on civil and political rights and a treaty on economic, social and cultural rights is east-west tension, uh, particularly, uh, for instance, views in the parts, parts of the West about the nature of economic and social rights, a fear that, you know, um, they weren't legally enforceable in the same way, that they had concerns about the implications of such rights for um the roles of different institutions of government, whether it be the courts, whether it be, you know, the government, whether it be the legislature. And also there was a real concern that these rights were being actively promoted by, say, by countries, you know, for instance, that very clearly had a very poor human rights record. I mean, I'm thinking of Russia at this point, where you had huge numbers of people being imprisoned, huge numbers of people being killed. And yet the argument was, well, we're, we're, we're very interested in economic, social and cultural rights and, you know, civil and political rights, 
you know, these aren't these aren't what we're pushing. So I think there was a fear on the part of Western countries, genuinely, that by giving, you know, recognition to economic, social and cultural rights, the same instruments, you were risking diluting civil and political rights protections to some extent. So there was, it's not simply that they said, these are our rights, we're really good at them. They're the ones we want to see protected properly, because they're really the only ones that are judicially enforceable. There was also a concern that, um, that looking beyond fundamental civil and political rights, in terms of legal protection at the international level, would end up diluting uh, the strength of protection given to those rights at the international level. That's so, so interesting. That because why would they be in opposition? Why would why would giving someone the right to an adequate standard of living dilute the right to free expression or the right to not be unlawfully imprisoned by the state? I mean, I think that's you know it's a very fair point. It's not so much about the nature of the rights, and I'm sure we'll come back to that again. The nature of the rights being in conflict, it was very much a conflict between who was the different uh, the different factions, uh, groups, or states that were arguing in favour of different rights. And I mean, what you effectively saw during the Cold War was the instrumental of instrumentalisation of human rights as just another point of you know geopolitical conflict. It was just another point in which you know the East and the West got to argue over something on the basis of, you know, in theory, political philosophy underpinnings, but to, to a large degree because of geopolitical tensions and ambitions. So it was really about, well, it, it's not that one, it's not that the right to adequate housing is in conflict with the freedom of speech. It's that it's that my side is for freedom of speech and therefore we're pushing that. And the other side is for right to have adequate housing or whatever. And, and it becomes sort of locked into a political um, opposition rather than a principal opposition. Absolutely. And I think you, you know, we can kind of regard that as a historic thing. But if we say, look at, um, look at the UK in a modern example, if you think about how the language of human rights is used in Northern Ireland, that's very much historically, but much less so now, but very much historically been along sectarian community lines. It's not so much to do with the quality. In, in that instance, it's not so much that one is arguing for civil and political rights and one is arguing for economic, social and cultural rights. But there is one side has argued very aggressively about human rights protection and the language of human rights. And another, the other side has been quite uncomfortable with that language, which is to do with the fact that human rights are regarded as being part of a broader political conflict. Let's talk about the sources. So where, if, if you want to go and find social rights, social and economic rights... What are the places you'd look? Um, and can, let's start with the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what, what is it and, and, and what does it have in it? So it's an international treaty. Um, so that means that these are where a state becomes party, where it volunteers to be bound by that treaty. Um, it is bound under international law to give effect to that treaty. So what do we see? We see uh, a whole series. We see the right to work. We see a whole range of work-related rights. So, for instance, uh, the right to rest and leisure. Um, we see the right to social security. We see the right to an adequate standard of living, including housing, uh, clothing, um, and it's now understood uh, water we see, and food, of course. We see um, the right to education. We see cultural rights, such as the right to take part in cultural life and to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress and its applications. And we see, basically, we see a very wide range of rights. So you can find a copy of, of the International Covenant uh, on the internet very easily. The language is a little bit complicated, but there's plenty of very good explainers if you're interested in it. But these, as I said earlier on, are rights to do with survival, development, and flourishing. Didn't you make some explainers? We did make some explainers. There's a series of really top quality videos yeah, yeah. Pr produced by, sorry, I'm, I'm joking, but produced by um, the University are you, of Nottingham. Are you saying they're not top quality? They're magnificent quality. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just sad. Okay, you so were how, clapping. If, if you need to find them, where would, where you, would, would you go? These were, these were explainers. It's a project that was run by the University of Nottingham and the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission for uh, Great Britain. Um, we put together some video explainers on economic and social rights, and you can find them on the University of Nottington, Nottingham sorry, Human Rights Law Centre website, or you can find them on the EHRC's website. If you Google and put Google making economic and social rights real, they'll come up. So the, 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 all these rights, they sound great, um, as in they sound like the kind of building blocks for living uh, happy and healthy and dignified and flourishing life 
but what do they what how do they actually work so so how how do you as as a social rights expert imagine that an individual will have access to those rights because i mean sure you don't just get given a job and get given all the money you need and get given all the food you need i think that's i think that's really important is that sometimes when we talk about economic and social rights we think these are kind of absolute rights so if we say someone has a right to adequate housing that means they have to be provided with you know an amazing house uh, regardless of any effort in their part right one of the things that i think is really important is if we if we're when we're talking about implementation of or giving effect to the covenant um, on the ground, we need to bear in mind that these are actually the way the way the covenant sees those rights being given effect to the duties it imposes actually are a lot more pragmatic than we might assume that they are. So right. the so rights not just f- free as much food and Absolutely. water and yeah. money and yeah. housing as you want. Yeah, it's different to that exactly. And it's not about saying to the state, well, actually, you can spend nothing in defence because everything has to go on. For instance. Um, your education system. Absolutely not. So if you look at, say, how the covenant is expressed, there's a hideously worded provision, which Article 2.1, which is kind of, which is the umbrella provision. Um, and it sets out the key umbrella duty uh, on states that have volunteered to be banned by the international covenant. Shall I read it? Please Sh- Shall I read it yeah. out? I'm, I'm going to do yeah. it. I think it's, it's a four-line sentence with, com- with lots of commas. Each state party to the present covenant undertakes to take steps individually and through international assistance and cooperation, especially economic and technical, to the maximum of its available resources with a view to achieving progressively the full realisation of the rights recognised in the present covenant by all appropriate means, including particularly the adoption of legislative measures." I did that within in four <laughs> breaths. Absolutely. And I think it's perhaps a beautiful example of when you, you know, draft a treaty in multiple languages at the same time, sometimes yeah. you come up with unhappy wording. But but it also has lots of qualifications it in really it, which, does. which is probably yeah. why it's so long, so having absolutely. been involved in these processes. Completely. So let's break it down. So I think the really important things, you know, what does what does what are the key parts of Article two one we'd want to be aware of? Well, first of all, it talks about, you know, um, the achievement, achieving progressively the full realization of the rights. So what that means is that you automatically have in this, in this instrument, in this legal document, this treaty, a recognition that not all rights can be given effect to, can be given effect to immediately, right? There's an acknowledgement that it's to be progressive over time, right? The second thing that you see in that phrase is there's a reference to um, states, uh, making use to the working to the maximum of their available resources. So again, we see human rights, economic and social rights as very pragmatic. States aren't being asked to do something they simply cannot afford to do. We're not turning around to an extremely poor country and saying, you, we want an absolutely perfect welfare state. Okay, it's states need to do what they can do in terms of their available resources. And that means, for instance, looking at things like it means looking at, say, state budget lines, but it also means looking at, for instance, state tax decisions, which, of course, tax policy is what ends up giving states the resources they have. And also, the state, for instance, the decisions that states make around um, international development and assistance. Um, do they accept and do they accept assistance and hence do what they can in terms of, of economic and social rights uh, achievement? But the important thing to note there is that basically it's understood that economic and social rights, full realization is going to be qualified over time and it's going to be qualified by the resources available to states. And those are not just financial resources. It's not just about throwing money at a problem. It's about human, organizational. I mean, in the time of the internet, it's you know technological, a whole range of different kinds of resources. It's about doing the best with what you have to move as, and I'm quoting the body that in, has the has the has the most important role when it comes to interpreting the covenant to move as expeditiously and effectively as possible, right? So to move as quickly and effectively as possible, right? Towards full realization, exactly, progressively, exactly. and effectively. Yeah. So the view is just we're not states aren't being asked to go out, spend all their money on social rights, cripple their economy. That's absolutely not what's in, what's envisaged. Yeah, and 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 what it also doesn't do is is set down um, particular ways. To do it, so it doesn't mention a national health service. It doesn't mention social security. But are those things implied? Well, it talks about the right to social security. Yeah. So I think, truthfully, that if you look at ISESCR, 
There is no question that if you're looking at how to give effect to the international covenant, really an advanced welfare state in terms of existing 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 state structures that we have at the moment, an advanced welfare state is what is envisaged, right? And that's not surprising, given again that it was drafted in the 1950s when we see the emergence of the welfare state in a lot, lot of the drafting countries. Yeah. And, and in the UK, yeah. we've got the NHS 1948, yeah. which is all around exactly. the same time. But we're very much not looking at, you know, a socialist republic in which, you know, we live in collective housing, we, you know, work in collective farms, every penny we make goes into a central coffer. Absolutely not. And again, the body that monitors the International Covenant, which is called the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which is made up of independent experts, has been very clear that the Covenant, giving effect to the Covenant, you don't have to have a particular political or economic system for that, right? This is a general international treaty that is meant to apply to a very wide range of systems. It is, you know, it makes clear what states need to do, but it doesn't, as you say, prescribe in extreme detail what it needs, you know, the processes or the structures it needs for to achieve those goals. Let's talk about the European Social Charter. So you've got this big, um, well, we, we talked about mummy and daddy, the, the, the Universal Declaration, then the, um, the International Covenant, which is the which is the social rights sort of source. It, it mm-hmm. flows out of the Universal Declaration. Then you've got the European Social Charter, which is the third big thing that we need to look at. So what is it? And, and why is it? why do we need a separate thing? So we in the UK look at the European Social Charter because it's a regional uh, human rights treaty. It's a Council of Europe uh, human rights treaty. So just as the European Convention of Human Rights uh, is a Council of Europe instrument or treaty, so too is the European Social Charter. Um, It's a treaty uh, that the the UK has volunteered to be bound by the 1961 European Social Charter, which sets out a very wide range of labour rights in particular, but also a number of social rights um, related to, for instance, legal. So Article 16 talks about the need for... uh, uh, legal, social, and economic protection of the family, which very much includes things, you know, like housing, etc. It talks about you know, the right to medical and social assistance. Uh, there's a right to social security. There's a whole range of different uh, different rights set out there. It's quite interesting um, when we think about the European. When we talk about human rights in the UK, we talk we think very much about the European Convention, not least because the European Convention has been brought into our law. So the European Convention is is another is another sister, treaty. It's another treaty. The Council of Europe is this intergovernmental um, body. They have the European Convention of Human Rights, to which the UK as a party sets out the rights to, for instance, fair trial, freedom from torture, right to life, etc. And then there is the sister instrument, which is very you know sister instrument. I'm doing quotation marks because really. We it's the European tree. Social Charter. We really need a family, family tree. tree absolutely. Yeah, and also, tree. I need to stop using pretty heteronormative terms. I, you know? I, I was just thinking, I was just thinking yeah, that. So it's yeah. the sibling. It's absolutely. The sibling. The sibling yeah. And also, may I point out, the parents. The UDHR is the parents. The parents. Not the mummy and the daddy. So we've got so, parents, we've got siblings, we've, absolutely. Got, we've got cousins. Absolutely. But, I mean, I think, uh, indeed... <laughs> And I think it would be probably, you know, we talk about the European Social Charter as being the sister instrument, but I think the kind of barely known distant cousin might be the might be a fairer analogy because it's the distant cousin that turns up to the family weddings and nobody's sure who they are, who they are, why that's they're very true, and, and where we, they've been all this time. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's interesting because, of course, the social chart. I think that's very fair if we think about, say, human rights work that's done in the UK, whether by lawyers or by civil society groups or the national human rights institutions like the Equality and Rights Commission, the Scottish Human Rights Commission. Um, there's a huge focus on the international UN treaties like ICESCAR, and there's a big focus on the ECHR, but the European Social Charter is almost unknown, which is interesting because the UK under that charter also has to give reports on very detailed, very detailed aspects of its social and economic policy with regards to things like housing, with regards to things like social security, with regards to things related to poverty. Um, But it's interesting because it's received very little attention at all. And there's been a shift. Indeed, there's been a shift, as, as you will know, Adam, and I'm sure we'll come back to it, that in recent years, particularly post-2010 and the introduction of austerity in the UK, um, or you know, entrenchment and deepening of austerity in the UK, 
we have seen a huge shift within human rights advocacy and human rights work in this country to talking about economic and social rights in a way that simply wasn't the case before. And as a result, we're suddenly hearing people talk about the European Social Charter, which is this very detailed, very useful instrument that sets out a very wide range of rights, but until now hasn't received much attention. So first question about the European Social Charter. How is it different, if it's different at all, to the International Covenant? So first of all, it's much more detailed. Second of all, the rights that are set out there are very much reflective of the European uh, social welfare state um, and trade union protections that were very much uh, at the forefront at the time which it was drafted. And, you know, it's a regional instrument, so it can be stronger than an instrument or more detailed and specific than an instrument that, for instance, has to engage countries across, has to engage countries across the world. This is Council of Europe. And so it can be more Europe-specific. And you do see that in the way in which rights are specified. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that the European Committee of Social Rights, of, on, on which I am, is more demanding in terms of, for instance, what it requires states to provide when outlining what levels uh, it needs states need to achieve in terms of social assistance. And they feel they can do that based on, say, European averages and statistics in a way that you couldn't do globally. Do the UK pay attention? They engage, they participate. There's been more media attention the last few years. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was an absolutely wildly aggressive response uh, to the findings of uh, the European Committee of Social Rights in its conclusions, which is the reporting process where they look at the state's performance. And in a way, uh, that's positive because it meant the government had noticed, which it doesn't normally, but it's negative because... Frankly, like ISESC, or like a large number of uh, the UK's international human rights uh, uh, commitments, uh, the government is very reluctant to engage with criticism and is quicker to dismiss than it is to actually say, oh, well, here's where we're going wrong. This is how we'll address this. It's different with the European Convention because there you have the court that makes binding judgments. The European Committee of Social Rights doesn't make binding judgments. It for the UK... It simply, uh, it simply looks at state reports and makes findings of conformity and non-conformity. But these are soft law. They're not directly enforceable, for instance, before domestic courts. Uh, states don't undertake to immediately address them in the way that they do, for instance, in the context of the European Convention. So it's not the same. There isn't the same sense of urgency. Yeah. I mean, people listening might be thinking of the UN... UN special rapporteurs who have occasionally 100%. made it to the front of the yeah. tabloid newspapers for saying that our housing provision is terrible or, you know, or, 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 and various other criticisms. But they're from the United Nations. So do they come under the international covenant or are they just coming because of their special do rapporteur Do you mean the UN role? special rapporteurs? Yeah, the, the UN special rapporteurs. Because so they're the ones that get on the front yeah. page of the newspaper for some reason. Well, I, I think it's strategic. They engage with media and they're also able to speak much more freely than, say, treaty bodies who are different. Have, um, for instance, the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights or the European Committee of Social Rights. It's a very different role. You're an independent expert working collectively. A UN special procedure is an individual mandate holder who's been given that mandate by the UN Human Rights Council, the chief UN kind of political human rights body. And they, they, have a, they, have, they, they look at either particular issues or particular countries. That's their job. And they can be more swinging and more detailed than, for instance, a body like the European Committee of Social Rights that has to look at a very wide range of rights and issues in its work. And the same is true of the UN Committee. The other thing that I think is worth noting about the UK, one of the reasons why the European Social Charter hasn't got much attention is because there's actually an updated version, a 1996 version, which is stronger, more effective and contains more rights, which the UK hasn't agreed to be bound by. But much more importantly, there is also a complaints mechanism and the UK has chosen not to be bound by it. So they don't want to have another European Court of Human Rights type institution? I don't think they want to be engaged in an international accountability complaints mechanism. I think that's what it's about. It's not the, the, the collective complaints process of the European Committee is quite different. It's a collective complaint. So for instance, 
It can be complaints can be brought by trade unions, uh, employers, organisations, certain certain non-governmental organisations. Can they not be brought by individuals? No, no, and it's not aimed at an individual remedy. Right. So, so it's, it's only, quite different. It's, yeah. You have to be a, a registered group yeah. or a certain kind but, of group. But for instance, if, if governments were taking seriously and giving effect to the outcomes of those collective complaints, it would regard it would require very, in some instances, very wide-ranging structural changes. In some instances, it would just involve small things like trying to get municipalities not to forcibly evict members of, you know, ethnic minority communities, you know, relatively straightforward. But in others, it would be about, for instance, making major changes to um, housing policy or, you know, health policy with regards to certain vulnerable groups, for instance. Let's drill down, to use, to coin a terrible corporate phrase, <laughs> and just look at some some in- examples of how this actually operates and how maybe how you think it should operate as well from within the field but thinking about food for example so so there is a right to food obviously it's not a right to all the food you want all the time Um, but what does it mean in in this context so it means you have a right to adequate food which means you need to have access to a sufficient amount of healthy nutritious food um not so that's two different things So, so sufficient amount to start with just the amount of calories Yes, which, that's which, an element which, which of it. it. To stay alive, I guess, and stay healthy. Alive and develop. And yep. it has to be, and it needs to be healthy food. And one of the things that's quite interesting is that you will see that one of the topics that's being tackled in the context of the right to food most recently, particularly post the global financial and economic crises, is obesity as malnutrition, as a violation of the right to food, because you've tons of food or lots of food. But it's of terrible quality. So it's bad for people. And it's resulting effectively, it, it, resulting in very negative health impacts. So that's an example of where the right to food isn't just about, it isn't just about the amount, it's about the quality. So it's almost like the right to nutrition rather than the right to food or, or something. It, it, nutrition is a key part of it. Yeah. Um, but there's also, with regards to the right to food, there's a statement um, on the right to food um, that's been made by the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Uh, that's the body that monitors, again, the International Covenant. And this is an interpretive statement. It's an authoritative interpretation of the right to food under the covenant. And, you know, it talks, for instance, about the right to culturally appropriate food. You know, if you're from a particular religious tradition, there are certain things you can't eat. So if you're in prison and you're not, for instance, and we've had cases here and people are not being provided, for instance, with halal or kosher food, I'm thinking back to news reports a few years ago, that's a violation of your right to food. You might be offered something that's nutritionally adequate, but it's not culturally adequate. It's not, you know, it's not appropriate. So that's a really interesting crossover between, you know, the right to freedom of religion under the European Convention, yeah. which is where those, those cases that came out of the prisons here, mm-hmm. um, where people were not being given um, access to um, halal and kosher food, I think, was under that. But you can e- equally look at it as right to the, the, the culturally appropriate food yeah, um, absolutely. The, as a social right. Absolutely, you can. And I mean... You know, to give you another example of how we talk about these divisions between rights, think about education, right, and how we conceptualize education in this country, right? Is it a social, you know, is it a social and economic right or is it a civil and political right, okay? It's clearly about being involved, being equipped for participation within your own civic and community context, right? We see the right to education um, in a fairly narrow form in the European Convention of Human Rights, and we see the right to education in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So to some extent, it's how you conceptualize a particular right, whether you decide whether it's civil and political or economic, social and cultural. There isn't a clear-cut line between them. Yeah, but it's like the home and the public square. Absolutely. And, 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 and where, where, does, where does the boundary lie? Um, but, but the right to education under the second protocol of the European Convention is kind of a bolt-on. Um, and, but, it, but it does include the right to, edu- for your, to have your child educated in a way which... Um, fits with your religious um, beliefs, which is very, um, it's very much a boundary, you know, on the boundary of those two areas of the home and the, but, and the public square. But you know, square. in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the educa- right to education includes the right of people to set up and direct their own religion, their own educational institutions, subject, you know, to certain basic state standards. So again, that's very clearly about facilitating minority education within the broader context of state education. So again, it's one of these funny things that 
goes under both headings. Um, but I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's useful exploring that because a lot of the time when we're dealing with economic and social rights and worries about them, it's not really about the nature of the rights themselves. It's what they would entail in terms of, say, our perceptions of distribution. So for instance, an example is, you know, one of the things you hear about economic, social and cultural rights is they're very expensive. Well, you know, the right to a fair trial, I mean, it's said constantly, that is a really expensive right, you know? And yet, and, you know, the right to freedom from torture, you know, training your police, training your police officers so that it's understood about how how to prevent behavior that would, for instance, constitute a violation of the right to freedom from torture. These are all expensive, right? However, we regard those as fundamental parts of, you know, a civilized society, our civilized society, that we would, that those things would be present and that therefore we would pay for them. But when it comes to economic and social rights, you know, there's, oh, goodness, the right to social security, that's very expensive. And, ooh, the right to housing, that's very expensive. And it's really about what we feel it's worth spending money on. It's interesting that if you look at, say, economic and social rights and attitudes towards them, there is real support for the right to education across systems, right? Whether you're strongly left, whether you're strongly right, whether you're allegedly pro-civil and political, whether you're allegedly economic and social, but that is a relatively uncontroversial right. But my goodness, get on to say the right to an adequate standard of living and you really dig down. And that is because that is regarded as having major redistributive yeah. well, it, well, it, implications. It, it's, it's that fight between equality of opportunity, mm-hmm. which education fits into very, yeah. very neatly and, and, and is comfortable from the right, and equality of outcome, which is quite different um, and is something that the right are uncomfortable with. But for instance, the right is very comfortable with tax breaks that benefit pensioners and also with the notion of pensions. But that pensions are, are social security. The right to social security is, it's the, you know, the right to a pension isn't just about the right to property under the European Convention. It's also about the right to social security. And an example of where you see the way in which there's manipulation around that is that, for instance, if we see spe- expenditure figures on social, on welfare expenditure in this country, often they seem absolutely huge, but that's because they include pensions. And people regard, whether correctly or incorrectly, social welfare benefits as somehow troubling in some instances, but are completely comfortable with pensions. So it's about really conceptualizing and understanding what the rights are. And that, I mean, it's a huge uphill battle with economic and social rights, because even within the human rights community, certainly until recently, there's been real lack of understanding about what they mean. And they've often been regarded as potentially threatening or undermining of, of, of real human rights concerns. Because they might make the whole human rights edifice collapse yeah. under the weight of unpopularity or political, being too political from the left or from the right. Is that, well, is that, is that the, the fear? No, I think there's been a fundamental misunderstanding that actually social rights are complementary. These are, you know, the right to freedom from torture, the right to life, the right to a fair trial. These are these are not economic, social and cultural rights. And they've led to extraordinarily controversial decisions by the courts here in, you know, areas such as terrorist suspects, etc. Um, so it's not about whether social rights make them more unpopular. I think there's been a view that they're distracting, that if you focus on social rights, you run the risk of undermining the human rights gains we've made. And I do sympathize with that because I think the fear is that if you say, for instance, reopen the Human Rights Act, which is our key human rights legislation that is based on the domestic incorporation of the civil and political rights European Convention on Human Rights. So so, so that's from 1998 when the um, European Convention, which is the 1953 treaty we signed up to, which has is basically civil and political rights, right to... um, free speech, not to be tortured, not to be unlawfully detained. That was brought into local UK law. So instead of having to go to Strasbourg to get your rights, civil and political rights enforced, you could go to your local courts. Um, And also public authorities would have a duty to enforce those rights or not breach those rights. So that's, that's, that's in the bag. Yeah. Or at least it's, it's as yeah. in the bag as our it's current in, it's poli- in the, politics yeah. allow. Absolutely. And I think it's in the bag. And I think there is a genuine, well-founded concern that actually it's not really in the bag. And if 
and this is completely understandable given the soundings we've heard in recent years about a British Bill of Rights, about a, you know a, a various manifesto commitments to you know up, you know get rid, take us out of the ECA European Convention to repeal the Human Rights Act, and there is an understandable defensiveness and protectiveness of the Human Rights Act, which is so important. But I think that by doing so, we we you know economic and social rights have a broad relevance that perhaps some civil and political rights don't have and they might bring in another shall we say audience or certainly a set of beneficiaries for human rights protection in the UK and that we don't see at the moment so so so, so let's let's explore that because I find that question really interesting um because I I I spend a lot of time and obsess slightly over this idea of why are human rights relatively unpopular in the UK and I think that the, the the I mean, generally, when you look at the evidence, the public attitudes research, the idea of human rights is really popular. People love the idea of having a right to free speech and not to be tortured. And it's a bit like asking people, do you like chocolate cake? And they're mostly going to say yes. But when you drill down to do they like the Human Rights Act or the European Convention, they've got they're quite sort of sceptical. Um, and and I questioned, I mean, and it really is an open question as to if you said, well, what about a right to food? What about a right to adequate standard of living? You know, and you explained it as in this is not just a right to unlimited things. It's a right to basic living standards, which you can then use to f- live, a, live a happy and flourishing life um, and go and do the things that you want to do, be a productive member of society. And, you know, put it in, in that way, which, would, which uh, could uh, attract both political audiences or a broad political audience. Would that then, and then people had this right to housing or um, social security or, or whatever, would that become, would, it, would human rights become like the NHS? You know, the NHS is a, is a sort of social right, yeah. it's a social rights um, law. It's, 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 for me, the NHS it's a social right it's It's a domestic, it is a brilliant example of giving effect to the right of everyone to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Absolutely. So it is. That's a, a you know a good example of a positive measure to give effect to rights. And it's also in the UK an institution. Um, what I would say, first of all, Adam, I, I'm going to c- come at your question in a few ways. First of all, is that I think that attitude towards human rights varies enormously across the UK. So I think, for instance, in Scotland, where you have much more political buy-in to the language of human rights, the concepts of human rights, not to romanticize it, but it's certainly better than at Westminster. You've got the SNAP, the Scottish um, human, National Human Rights Action Plan, which has very much been you know, given, uh, driven by the Scottish Human Rights Commission, engaged with very broadly, part, very participatory, has involved a huge number, a huge engagement with civil society and advocacy organizations. I think that is a very different context for human rights. And there's very different, and there's evidence that shows this very different attitude towards human rights than, for instance, in England. And that's true of civil, civil, social, economic, cultural, political, etc. Right? I think it's very different in Northern Ireland, again, there, because you have the political uh, conflict. Uh, part of the Good Friday Agreement was that you would have a particular human rights arrangement for Northern Ireland and resulted in a Bill of Rights process that has effectively broken down. The Northern Ireland Bill of Rights, uh, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission gave advice to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and nothing has happened since. And was there an idea of putting in place social rights? Yep, absolutely. They recommended wide-ranging human rights protection um, across across the whole range of different human, different human rights labels. Not, in, uh, not environmental, I think, but that's a new area. We can come back to that. Um, but what's interesting to note is that there you had a very wide human rights education program run by the Human Rights Consortium. And it's interesting now to see, if you see attitudes towards social and economic rights, those are very popular across across um, across sectarian divides, particularly amongst uh, more socioeconomically deprived uh, communities, simply because there is an obvious interest in adequate housing. But you know, you to kind of, and then in in Wales we have this uh, children's rights measure and this very active engagement with a wide range of children's rights as a matter of legal duty in terms of Welsh legislation. So so we have very different attitudes towards rights across the UK. And we all know that England isn't constitutive of the UK, but we tend to treat England as being, you know, when we talk about the UK, we often just mean England. So that's a pedanting point, but it's important. Would social rights make, make human rights more popular? I think 
it depends whose rights you focus on, right? If you say everyone has a right to food, no one likes stories about hungry children who have to, you know, who are left hungry when there are no breakfast clubs during the summer, right? That is bad. If you are talking about... Or, or food banks. Food banks. F- food no banks one likes... Pe- s- seems to be something which cuts through... Cuts through, absolutely. To, Another to example... All people of yeah. all different political yeah. persuasions think yeah. that, that uh, I've thought in the last few years, hold on, yeah. the, this looks bad. Yeah. The and fact that the food, yeah. millions of people are using food banks. And you have moves around, you know, at the devolved level, you have different protections with regards to, say, housing and food that very much is reflective of that discomfort. But I think, for instance, food is a, it's an easy one. No one feels it's okay for people to starve to death. Now, on the other hand... Mm, People who are homeless because of addiction issues or people who are long-term unemployed and don't have visible, for instance, visible disabilities and can be featured in newspapers, I'm not sure that people feel the same way about ensuring that they have an adequate standard of living, for instance. So I think it's not that economic and social rights will be universally popular, that every economic and social rights will be as popular or that economic and social rights will be, for every group will be as popular. But I think they can certainly do something to develop our understanding of human rights about ensuring good, you know, a social, you know, uh, a vision of the social good, a vision of social justice that works for everyone. And everyone needs food and everyone needs housing. Okay. There is sometimes a view, oh, a right to a fair trial. Who needs that? Well, it's really criminals because I'm not in trouble with the law. No one I know is in trouble with the law. So really that is, you know, that's for over there. It's about othering. And that's, for instance, a problem that Social Security has because people don't go, I need a pension, I have a pension, I have a right to a pension, that's the right to Social Security. They think voluntarily unemployed people who want to watch their widescreens drink cans and be, you know, supported by the state. And it's all very well until you end up on hard times um, or being falsely accused of a crime or being accused of a crime you've done. You know, all of of those, that empathy is very difficult to um, get before... For, but, for a lot yeah. of people. But if you look at social rights, they engage economic and social rights, far more than civil and political rights, they engage with issues such as poverty, structural inequality, you know, his, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, historic structural inequality as well. And on the one hand, that's... So what's, what's structural inequality? So for instance, if we think about the treatment, one of the things that we don't hear very much um, in the context of the bad effects of austerity is the fact that austerity had a catastrophic impact on um, on ethnic minorities, BAME communities in particular. That just wasn't featured. And that is to do with the historic marginalization of many, many, uh, many of those communities. Right. As, as in that the, the, they've been marginalized for so long. They've been subject to become, discrimination. It's become part of the structure yeah, of our society. Totally. They are. And even if individuals yeah. don't consciously yeah. operate in a way which um, direct where they want to discriminate they yeah. end up discriminating yeah. because of these sort of implicit attitudes and processes that just that have kind of if solidified have, over if the you years. have communities that live in poorer housing that receive poorer education for instance right that feeds into attitudes about those communities and it reinforces structural discrimination against them because oh well we know what they're like look at how they live the fact is that our civil and political rights protection even say the rights to you know equality rights and non-discrimination they've brought us so far but if we're in fact talking about an actual restructuring of society to address issues such as poor housing poor education the directly impact on life opportunities and capacities to engage on an equal level then you need social rights to do that civil and political rights will only get you so far i think that's very important and i think you know i mean i'm quite instrumental about human right about human rights my view is human rights are great tools because they drive us towards they are the tools that will bring us towards a vision of social justice And my view is that you couldn't possibly have a proper vision of social justice only relying on rights such as the right to a fair trial, the right to life, the right to freedom. So when you say you're instrumental, you mean that you see rights not as an end, but as a means towards towards some bigger vision. Absolutely. There's a brilliant piece by um, Paul Hunt uh, called uh, Social Rights or Human Rights, Why the UK Human Rights System is Rigged, right? Um, and he describes, I mean, it's very interesting. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it's very interesting. But he describes human rights as inspirational, insurrectional, uh, thinking about, say, human rights and apartheid, um, operational and judicial. And I think that's fascinating because for social... Can, can you just do, do, I'll break those, it down do, those, do those four things again? So inspirational, insurrectional, operational 
and judicial. These are these four functions of human rights. And I think if we look at economic and social rights and we think about stuff such as social justice, economic and social rights, you know, we talk about them up in the air. They're absolutely inspirational, right? A society in which everyone has access to adequate housing, where they have education, where they have you know, where they are as healthy as they can possibly be, right? You know, the right to the highest attainable standard of health, which is under the International Covenant. That's insurrectional. It means they can be used as tools of protest, of tools of objection. If we think about, you know, strikes, trade unions, that's an example of labor rights as insurrectional, for instance, in a domestic context. Operational, and this is the key one for economic and social rights. This is the idea that you use human rights to shape law and policy budget decision-making, local government decision-making, devolved administrations, national government, their actions from the get-go, right? The notion that you are shaping a more human, a a more socially just society because, in fact, you're conceptualizing the inputs the, the you know the the processes of decision making, but the inputs, the outputs, and the outcomes of those processes in a hum, in a human rights compliant way, right? So it's a holistic approach to human rights. Um, what, what about the way we treat each other? Is that is that in, individual to individual? Does that fit into that? that no, it doesn't framework? actually. But I think that, and and we might come back to that. But no, that's that's not necessarily within the operational because it's focusing more on the role of the state as yeah. opposed to. Um, but the idea is, if you put these, if you embed these principles yeah. into those different areas, you will change the way we treat each other on a, on a wider level. I think at a very fundamental level, if the state treats everyone with dignity, there is a greater likelihood that individuals who are treated with dignity by the state will treat each other with dignity, right? But the fact is, you know, there's no, uh, there's no accounting for human nature. So it's easier maybe to take, you know, I don't want to get involved in the rights responsibility discussion, for instance, because I think... I think it's distracting and generally used to undermine, frankly, discussion of rights so this is obligations the discussion in this as country. to whether you kind of earn human rights, whether it's a sort of contractual arrangement where you are... Res- or whether you lose human rights for yeah. failing to live up to your responsibilities. Yeah. And I think it's but, been... But the, but the Universal Declaration has responsibilities it does. in it. And the region, if you look at the regional human rights systems, the African Charter and Human and People's Rights... Um, if you look at the inter-American system, which is the, the human, regional human rights system for the Americas, they have responsibilities too. But it's very different to the, to the discourse of rights and responsibilities here because those are non-binding responsibilities, right, under those systems, right? There's never a sense that actually by failing to live them up, you somehow lose rights or somehow responsibilities and your obligation to give effect to them trump your entitlement to rights. Whereas here in the UK, that discourse has very much been about how if you're a good citizen, you get the rights, but otherwise, I mean, yeah. maybe you disagree, but that's... Well, well no, no, I mean, I, 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 my worry is the, the China example where you start to be monitored as to how much social capital you're, um, you're, you're earning and you get rewards yeah. for that. And it's kind of, it does seem, it, 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 it's, an, it's a way of looking at society, but I don't think it's a human rights way of looking at society, which yeah. is universal and inalienable rights. And you have them, they're basic standards. You don't lose them because you behave in particular ways. They might affect, you, you might have different access to them, yeah. but you don't ever lose them. I they're, think it's they're true. About, they're and about I, being yeah. human, not yeah. about being a good human. Can I just very quickly to come back to the, you know, talking about economic and social rights, added value. You've got, you know, I said, we talked about inspirational, insurrectional, operational. And the last one is judicial. And the reason I want to mention judicial is because so much of the discussion, particularly amongst human rights lawyers and advocates in previous years, particularly in the UK, has been about the courts and economic and social rights. And do we want the courts enforcing, say, the right to housing and making the government spend all its money on housing when, in fact, you know, uh, it has perfectly good other priorities, giving all the money, you know, to one group rather than to other groups. And I think economic and social rights, one of the problems for economic and social rights is that we have talked very much about the judicial and the courts rather than focusing on the operational, the inspirational and to some degree, the insurrectional. I think that that's something we really need to to challenge when we as human rights, I say ac- academics, advocates, activists, lawyers think about it in this country. But I also think that if we think about what economic and social rights can do, perhaps the judicial is important, but I don't think that should be, you know, an accountability for failure, failing to secure human rights is absolutely fundamental. 
But actually, accountability will only get you so far. You need something from the get-go. You need a culture exactly. of, of, of rights. Exactly, and ownership. And, 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 and once you get to the courts, it's, mm. it's, practically, it's basically too late because you've already you've, you've got a problem by the time you get to Absolutely. courts. Ideally, you don't ever have to um, yeah. get to the courts if you've embedded and a, a human rights culture. And when you hit the courts, and this has been a big objection to human rights from, uh, to economic and social rights from, say, social movements, who you would think would be, you know, delighted with it. Historically, it was, well, actually, if, if we're talking about rights, isn't that, you know, to some degree an elite exercise? And if you do st- litigation, for instance, or, judi- you know, anything involving courts, then you're dealing with elite actors who are lawyers and judges who are very much elite actor in this country, almost, well, not entirely without exception, but the vast majority of them are very elite actors and many, you know, socioeconomically, you know, in multiple other ways. But you're again reserving decisions about, you know, social policy, et cetera, to an elite that aren't necessarily best equipped. Or is this where we want key decision making to be made? No, exactly as you say, we want it to be a culture of human rights that comes, you know, from the very bottom, whether it's starting with right holders all the way up through the structures of government, right? For instance, the civil service. We always talk about, you know, ministers. We talk about the legislature. But actually, when it comes to -to day-to-day satisfaction of economic and social rights, it's very much about the civil service, you know? And that's, for instance, where you see in Wales, huge efforts are being directed. In Scotland, that's where human rights education efforts are being directed. And I think that's really important. I just wanted to ask you about the, the politics of social rights now. And whether you think it, do you think there is a prospect of a social rights bill coming through? I mean, the most obvious, um, the most obvious vehicle would be the Labour Party because that I mean that seems to be a natural home for social rights, or maybe not. Um, but do you think there are some draft bills out there? Is is there any prospect in the next five ten years of having an infor- a legally enforceable social rights act in the UK or, or amending the Human Rights Act to include? Social rights. Well, there's a range of different, uh, you know, there's, as, as you know, the, and as you just said, there's a range of different, uh, different initiatives. Um, at the Scottish level, uh, there were the recommendations of the First Minister's Human Rights uh, Leadership Advisory Group, which I had the privilege of being a member, which made uh, recommendations uh, oriented at ensuring human rights leadership in Scotland whether post-Brexit or in the context of independence, recommending a Scottish Act of Parliament, setting out a wide range of human rights, including economic, social, cultural and environmental, to complement uh, to complement uh, the protections that are already there. And that information is all available if you look up online and look at the human, if you just look up human rights leadership, uh, Scotland, uh, all the information is there. Um, and that's obviously, a, but that's a Scotland-specific set of recommendations. It's very much shaped by, at the moment, uh, the particular framework of devolved res- reserved areas. Um, there's some things that Scotland can't, the Scottish government, with however human rights it is, isn't able to do because it's not within its power to do it. Um, and of course, everything can be reversed from Westminster. Um, in Northern Ireland, you have the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights, but that seems to be in stasis at the moment. But of course, it'll be very interesting when and if it is back in, back when it is back working. Um, what will happen with that Bill of Rights, particularly if, particularly post Brexit, if we have an All Ireland, dare I use the word backstop? Um, I know we won't go there. And the other thing is that in Wales at the moment, we already have a legal framework where, to some extent, economic and social rights concerns can be taken into account. And that's the um, I'm going to destroy the name, but it's effectively the children's rights measure, which has been in place for a number of years now. It has some strengths, it has some weaknesses, um, but certainly we already have a possibility of that. So those those are at a basic level. There's also some, you know, there's this Newcastle initiative, this draft bill. Um, that has been designed on economic, social and cultural rights that's aimed at being, I think, UK-wide. Um, sometimes it's talked about it being in England, sometimes it's UK-wide. I mean, these it's all very exciting. But actually, the really important thing with regards to whether or not a human rights act, whether, you know, whatever rights it contains, is effective and has been, will ba- be based on things like widespread participation in the drafting of that legislation, human rights education, 
proper engagement with day-to-day decision makers. Um, and it isn't All the just... things that didn't happen yeah, with the Human Rights Act. Absolutely, absolutely. But legislation isn't a panacea. You know, a piece of law isn't a panacea. It isn't a wide-ranging solution for social problems. It isn't a wide-ranging solution for human rights problems if you don't have that buy-in and ownership by different ranges of stakeholders, both those who have the responsibility for giving effect to human rights and those to whom human rights are most important, the people who seek to enforce them. So the final um, thing to ask you is what I'm asking all guests, which is, can you give us three inspiring human rights things? And they could be a book or a person or a case in the courts or whatever you want. Okay. I think if I had to read, uh, refer to a case, actually, I think there's one case that profoundly affected me as someone who's interested in human rights as a human rights advocate and as a human rights scholar and that is the uh, treatment action campaign case in South Africa um, which resulted in the provision of neveropine to prevent mother-to-child transmission of the HIV virus in all public hospitals in South Africa uh, this case emerged from a long-standing um, wide-ranging, profoundly participatory and deeply impressive um, advocacy campaign. It's, it was hugely important at the time because it, the government was an absolute AIDS denialist. The South African government was absolutely in, in the grasp of AIDS denialism and was trying to limit access to this particular drug. And what's impressive is the movement before the decision, the decision itself is a, you know, is a beautiful judgment very much on economic and social rights, and then the follow-up movement um, about the force, the implementation of the decision in the face of very strong government opposition. It's for me, it's the it's the ultimate economic and social rights case. In terms of people, um, I think Mary Robinson, uh, uh, obviously a fellow countrywoman, but I think you know heroic human rights lawyer in a very different Ireland around issues like reproductive rights. Uh, President of Ireland, uh, UN Commissioner for Human Rights, where she absolutely spoke truth to power. And in the last few years, uh, the leader of uh, an organization focused on climate justice. And the third thing that I would flag, you know, if we're talking about developments that really excite you in human rights, the climate strikes. Uh, They're driven by young people, they're cross-class, they're cross-country, and they are focused on an enormous social wrong um, that is going to have catastrophic, that is already having and is going to have catastrophic human rights implications. So those would be my three things. But I think it's a really exciting time for human rights. Thank you very much, Professor Aoife Nolan. Um, That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Adam. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. If you want to get involved in the podcast, please follow on Twitter at BeHumanPodcast or email adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. And if you want to support, we have a Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if you want to sponsor, sponsor at betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks very much. Bye.